0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening. You're listening to 3RRR here on 102.7 FM. The show that you're about to hear is Playhouse Cave. We do film criticism. It's brought to you by myself, Thomas Cordwell, and I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and Cerise Howard. It's a full cave. Good evening, all. Good evening. Good evening. So Hi. we're just going to talk about Mad Max Fury Road for the next hour. <laughs> yes. we, have we got that out of our system? I don't we've think we've just we... been
1: sitting here for the last week in this <laughs> in this studio,
2: non-stop rocking backwards and forwards. <laughs> Furiosa, 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 Furiosa. <laughs> Remember me. <laughs>
0: Uh, I reckon we will move on and do some other films, but um, Aww. gee, that was fun last week. Yeah, people, all, all our shows are podcast and archived. We we should mention as well. There's Triple R's fantastic radio on demand service. You can you can access that if you want to listen to all the music and giveaways and cuts and, and line blunders. Um, otherwise, we are a podcast as well, so you can find us via iTunes and via the Triple R pages. Now, on tonight's show, we have stories of violence and vengeance. In Wild Tales. This is an Argentinian and Spanish co-production. It was nominated for this year's Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. There you go. Uh, We're going to look at the latest film by Bridesmaids writer-director Paul Feig, um, once more teaming up with actor Melissa McCarthy, uh, this time in the action comedy Spy. And towards the end of the show, we'll take a look at Hatchet for the Honeymoon, a 1970 Italian giallo film directed by Mario... B- B- oh, how do I say that, Alex? Bava, votes, as it's spelt. But first, we're going to start off with Wild Tales. Yes, so Wild Tales. This is a
2: Spanish-Argentinian co-production, executive produced by Pedro Almodovar. And there is some, definitely some Almodovarian flavours. I didn't know that, but it makes sense. And and farce in this film. Uh, It's written and directed by Damien Ziffron. Interesting because, as you mentioned, Thomas, this is an anthology-type film. It it covers six standalone short segments. There's some alliteration for you. (laughs) Um, But unlike a lot of other anthology-type films, and I count things like The Twilight Zone of the early 80s, The ABCs of Death, uh, VHS, and The Turning... We have a a central creative figure here. So whereas I think those films play off uh, a central theme being produced or written and directed by different directors and emphasising difference over similarity, here the film seems to have a a coherence. And as you mentioned, Thomas, the central theme for Wild Tales is tales of violence and vengeance. So here we have tales that riff off uh, or are set in places like an, an aeroplane... A darkened restaurant, uh, a duel between two men on a lonely highway, a demolition expert who goes a little <laughs> crazy, uh, a, a car accident and its ramifications, and a wedding. I, I don't think I'm giving too much away by describing the settings of these various tales. No, absolutely not. But what I th- what really fascinated me about this film, and I have my two favourites, which I'll mention I- in a moment, is is the way in which, rather than just play for shock value or indulge kind of sp- the spectacle of violence, which is Almost how I feel about a lot of the ABCs of death and the VHS films. There's, I think, there's a good degree of social commentary in here. That he actually is playing on and questioning the value of things like vengeance and violence. It's not just you know using those as those thematic tropes as exploitation type material. Um, I think the interesting, my, my favourite two are the central two, the tale of the highway men, which is very reminiscent of Steven Spielberg's slash Richard Matheson's duel, where we have two men battling it out. And again, without giving too much away, the film, I think, at that point, questions where does vengeance get us and also plays with audience identification in really interesting ways as the violence or the acts of violence escalate sort of putting the audience in their position of who are you going to root for to a point where perhaps you don't actually want to root for either men and you have to watch the spectacle as it plays out. And also the Demolition Man one. It's not actually called Demolition Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how I've described it. The um, one with Wesley Snipes. Yeah. <laughs> and Sylvester Sloan and a young Sandra Bullock. Underrated film, Can't I'd we like have say.
1: one show where we don't talk about Demolition Man? Uh, Remember where you are, Cavers.
2: I really love that film. Sorry, let's move on. <laughs> actually, I'm going to compare it to another... Um, <laughs> Mid '90s film, and that is Falling Down. This is a basically Joel Schumacher. I thought the same thing because we have a central figure who comes from a violent background. If you remember the Michael Douglas character in Falling Down, comes from a defense force. You know, Defense is his license plate. He's on his way home to his child's uh, birthday party, and he's having a. He has a fractured relationship with his wife, and one by one things just go wrong for him in a sort of a snowballing fashion. I mean, this is the this is a contracted version of um, Falling Down, and I thought again it was really interesting. And, and and not just because of the way in which it escalates the violence and starts to question where it positions the uh, the audience and questions themes of like the the role of bureaucracy and, and different types of violence but also the sting in the tail about you know as a society, in some ways, we celebrate violence as much as we fear it. And I thought the end of that one was, was really clever in, the, in that context. And I think that the final episode, the wedding one, is interesting in terms of marking out a trajectory of violence from a, the opening one, which is really spectacular violence, to something that suggests maybe there is a way forward from violent acts.
3: Yeah, that final one. Uh, well, actually, it has to be said that a lot of this film is very, very funny. A lot of the the vengeance in it. Uh, whether you sympathise with one character or another, it's it's hard not to find some of the material here extremely uh, hilarious. Uh, that final one, absolutely. It's that sort of Bridezilla phenomenon, um, where a wedding just spirals horribly out of control, uh, and and. Um, The the red is flowing every bit as... The the claret is flowing every bit as much um, blood-wise as it might be on top of any of the tables that are soon dispersed all (laughs) about the room as as the whole place is trashed magnificently. It's it's a hoot. But, yes, there's a whole lot of stuff woven into this in terms of the social commentary. And certainly class uh, rears its head time and again, especially in that roadside... uh, I think it's actually called Road to Hell. Right. Um, Yeah, where... (laughs) Road (laughs) to Hell. Where we've got the the, the bourgeois guy uh, taking on what he considers is to be someone well beneath him, uh, just some sort of hillbilly. And you just know it's not going to go well. He's He might have a flashy car, he's arrogant, and you want him to get his comeuppance. But yes, yeah, I know what you mean, Josh, by saying that your, your sympathies sort of oscillate between these two characters. And uh, again, it, it lend, ends in just... Extraordinary spectacle. It's really pretty thrilling, actually. That one, as well as funny, though. I have to say that the sting in the tail of that one it does seem a bit less funny by the very end of it. The opening opening salvo in this film is astonishing it's a great joke taken to uh, an extraordinary but perfectly logical conclusion so i'd love to address but it's a bit of an awkward one as we've all discussed before we got on the air and that it, uh, a certain recent historical event is, is it's made quite awkward to actually even talk about uh, on account of this event which i shall rather than allude to any
0: further throw to someone else i'm assuming this film was made well before that event oh, wasn't well before. yeah yeah
3: I, I saw this film in july last year and, yeah uh, of course yeah, yeah. yeah. um when actually when the film was broadcast
2: on TV they had a title card um, like a sort of disclaimer apparently in Europe saying this is not related to oh. that this particular incident that yeah. you've witnessed recently well, which just
1: reinforces really that. it even
0: worse though doesn't it, yeah, it it's does. one of those things At least maybe better off it, at least I didn't cut yeah. it, yeah. That, I mean, that first sequence, it, it plays out more like a sketch. Like, it's yeah. probably the least sophisticated of all the, the stories in this film. But I still really enjoyed the, 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 the punchline. I mean, the black comedy in this is really ramped up to the to, to 11. Um, but certainly the, the class con- conflict seemed to be one of the... Overarching themes with most of these films. I mean, yeah, especially that 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 kind of road rage story. You've certainly got the upper class versus the lower class, but even yeah, people in different positions of power. So in in the in the restaurant scene, you've kind of got the the the, the gangster versus the um, the workers. Um, the demolition expert story. He's very much, I suppose, from the middle class, and all his conflicts are with people in the service industry. So people who are, you know, paid to tow away his car and are asking for fines, and they're all sort of working class type characters who make his life hell, and he gets incredibly frustrated with them. And again, I think it does nice things playing with your with your sympathies. I, I love the final sequence. I think that was the highlight for me. The um the, the wedding just gone just gone so wrong because. Funnily enough, I think that was the chapter for me that felt the most plausible in, in terms of the way things just gradually escalated further and further and further, and then just the crazy way they they. Ended that, which was just absurd and bizarrely sexy and just ridiculous and, and very very funny. Sexy. Right, bizarrely sexy—that's yeah. the name of my autobiography. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's how your wedding...
1: sequel to Demolition Man.
2: <laughs> I may, uh, my memory may be a little bit hazy, Thomas, but I'm pretty sure uh, this is how your wedding ended. You were it?
1: there. <laughs> it
0: was. Yeah, my wife is listening. She may disagree. But um, <laughs>
1: <Sorry. you> know... <laughs> hi, honey. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, look, really thrilling film, and I, I, th- I think the, I don't think the moral lesson is too hard-hitting or necessarily to avert, but it's sort of basically saying when you commit acts of vengeance, it's satisfying for the briefest moment, and then it just makes everything a whole lot worse.
1: I have to issue a public apology over the weekend. uh, Just socially, I recommended this film to quite a few people. People say, ''Oh, can you tell me what I should see?'' I have a really nasty feeling that I've told people to go out and see Wild Things. There's a whole bunch of people that I know who are going off to see the 1998 Neve Campbell and Denise Richards film. Which is actually
2: great. I rewatched it recently, sorry.
1: I want them to see this. I don't want them to... No offence against Neve Campbell and Denise Richards. I think I made a blunder. But in itself, maybe this could be like if there's a sequel to this film, that story, the vengeance that those people seek against me for making them watch the wrong film, it's all going to come into play. Um... I think the role of the Almodovar brothers producing this has really put an emphasis on the the Spanish aspects of this film. I'm really fascinated and I don't know a lot about it. I certainly don't pretend to be an expert, but Argentine genre film is something that I find fascinating. I know, um, mostly, mostly horror. There's some really quite remarkable things coming out of Argentina in, in horror, which it sounds a bit random that I, that I bring that up, but I'm, Uh, Watching this film, I thought about... There's an Australian director called uh, Craig Anderson uh, who did the TV series Black Comedy. And he brought up this... um, He has this wonderful idea that the horror and comedy are both genres about what happens when things go wrong. And I was thinking of that line while I was watching this film because it's precisely what it's about. It's about people, 95% of them quite horrible people, dealing with things going pear-shaped. So on top of this vengeance aspect, I think that just people dealing with things going wrong is such a driving drumbeat through this film that i found really fascinating i i mean it is really funny i totally agree with you guys on that um and it's really good if you've got a short attention span which i do and i hate to confess that i really like uh anthology films in general but um i think that this is up there with with one of my favorite comedy anthologies um i'm thinking of woody allen's everything you always wanted to know about sex but afraid to ask i'm going to go there john landis's kentucky fried movie um this and it's nice to have not such an anglo film on that list i loved it
3: in fact this is really star-studded the stars of argentine cinema are out in force so ricardo darren
0: is yeah Can't say how much I love him. Yeah, me too. And and speaking about Argentine cinema, he was the star of an incredible film from 2009 called The Secret In Their Eyes. There's a Hollywood remake on the way, but I would encourage people to check out that 2009 crime thriller that he stars in.
3: Yeah, it's excellent. He's great in a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah. XXY, I don't know if you remember this film. I think it may have opened Queer Film Festival here several years back. A really beautifully understated film exploring uh, the struggles of an intersex individual mm-hmm. uh, in a small Argentine beachside town. Really, you know, he's just terrific. He's got these haunting eyes. Is oh, this, S- the,
2: right?
0: this is from the, demol- no, the demolition yeah. man? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, He's the, he's the demolition yeah. expert. Yeah, right. yeah. I haven't seen him play that kind of role before, but yeah. I think it works having a very serious actor associated with very serious roles in that position in the film because I, it I, makes the comedy work so much better
1: I didn't know that about him but mm. he had such strong presence, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, the fact that we knew instantly who it was he's just got remarkable presence on screen really He knows how to work
0: a beard <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note are we done talking about wild tales? Speechless. <laughs> well we could talk about wild things if, and, or beards if you want <laughs> Let's move on, you are listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R
1: you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 RR r in melbourne australia
0: we're going to talk about spy
3: now cerise we are Yeah, t- uh, from director <laughs> writer paul um is it fig fag or Fig? But, or, however we... i did not say it at the start yeah i have no idea uh previously brought us bridesmaids Uh, A lot of work previously on American comedy TV, The Office,
0: Arrested Development, directed lots of these sorts of shows. And he created Freaks and Geeks, which I think... Created? Yeah, he's credited as the creator of that. That's worth a mention. So that's raising hopes,
3: isn't it? Uh... Now, curiously, this film has been released earlier in Australia than most other parts of the world. Read into that what you will. Melissa McCarthy is Susan Cooper. She is a a desk-bound CIA agent, um, forever in the air of Bradley Fine, Jude Law, who is an agent in the field, a a handsome, debonair, uh, seemingly invincible... uh, sort of piss take spy really i mean the whole spy genre even from the 60s has been pretty silly this is an extremely silly film in the vein of uh, not quite as camp as austin powers let's say unfortunately but it's um not terribly far removed from the world of james bond only a bit dafter here a nuclear device is the mcguffin uh to be sold to arms dealers send in the cia agents who are capable of anything if they have somebody else back in the office who somehow has an omniscient early warning system which enables him to detect human bodies in the vicinity such that the agent on the ground can beat seven shades of shit out of them. Um, so the film begins in scary Eastern Europe. I mean, it's a palatial building, but it's Sophia, Bulgaria. I think Eastern Europe has gone back to being the villains of choice for Hollywood because the whole Arab thing's a bit touchy. Um, so back to, uh, you know, it's, it's all, also cold war ish again. Um, The CIA seems to be both omnipresent, omniscient, uh, and yet the office in which people work is plagued with vermin. I don't know what you want to read into that. I think this is a film that actually defies subtextual reading by and large. It is exceedingly silly. There is... um look there's a love triangle, a triangle a a line there's a would-be relationship between Susan and Bradley Fine if only he knew how she felt about her and if only she wasn't dumpy and frumpy because that's the running joke in this film. Even though that she's meant to turn this on its head because she will kick ass uh, when she finally gets out in the field herself possibly to retrieve Bradley Fine who has possibly been murdered by the evil Rose Byrne playing Raina Boyanov she, she might as well be out of rocky and as well she's a completely ludicrous but actually often quite funny and sweary um caricature uh everyone in this film is actually hamming it up endlessly i think um especially peter S- serafinovich as aldo a lecherous italian spy uh who's just you know, so so over the top uh Touchy feely when he oughtn't be, and and Jason Statham is having a ball. Um, it's completely sending himself up. I think there's probably a lot of people out there who never realised he began in comedy, or at least those sort of mockney comedies of Guy Ritchie. He's been an action hero Hollywood style for many years. He is completely ludicrous in this film and having a great time and quite good fun. But look on the whole, this is an exceedingly silly film. I got a few laugh out loud moments out of it. I have to confess, but uh, it is just preposterous. Um, but one thing on note before passing it on is the appearance of Vyarka Seruchka, uh, Ukrainian Eurovision contestants of uh, 2007. Uh, I believe they finished second that year. Robbed. I was to, robbed. I was trying to place them when they're, they're performing mysteriously in Paris and um, <laughs> I... Performing the very song, I believe they were in Eurovision Indeed. with that, yeah. And I don't know quite what that's about. Um, all this business of changing costumes in the whole espionage game—is it the, the, the fact that Vieira is a drag performer? I mean, it's really, look. As I said, this film probably defies any subtextual analysis. It's just not there. I'm, I'm clutching at straws here. Um... Yeah, uh, cross, double cross, multiple locations, that usual spy film travelogue thing, Paris, Rome, Budapest. Uh, This film is both utter shite, but quite
0: good fun too. (laughs) Anybody? Thomas, I'm the only person who like this, aren't I? Because you two are going to savage it. Yeah, I am. Well, we go on, awkward. you go, you go. No, no, I'm No, I really hear. in hearing why. We yeah.
1: respect your opinion. We well, I, I
0: found it very funny because it's a comedy and I didn't take it seriously. Um, so that any aspect of it being ludicrous didn't worry me because yeah. it's a comedy. Yeah, I, got, um,
3: <laughs> I got laughs, I got laughs, not at first.
0: Doesn't it doesn't mean comedy yeah. is a critic-proof. No, no, I'm not saying it's critic-proof at all. Um, but I'm saying the implausibility is a part of the genre. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it's, a, it, it's played out like a Bond film. Yeah. So you're right, it's not as far as Austin Powers, it's not as far as kingsman even it's um um it's curious actually that we've had two bond-esque films come out in the last 12 months that that both i think take the i think both their charm is they actually take the whole genre seriously and they work within the trappings of the genre so i think this one is true to the silly spy um um yeah thriller thriller mode uh but look i just Okay, so I found it very funny, that's fine, maybe that's just personal taste, but what I really found interesting is I think there was a big gender switch in this film. Our hero is Melissa McCarthy, and I don't think the joke is on her being um, dumpy and undesirable at all. I think the gag is she's in love with someone who doesn't recognise that love, because every other man in this film falls for her, and there's no question that she's considered desirable to every other male character. Um... And it's not a gag that she's hopeless and terrible because she's, uh, you know, whatever. The, the gag is she was once a really promising recruit who was kept away from the field because it was kind of douchebag alpha men who said, you're not good enough to do this role, let us step up and, and, and take control. So when she finally gets her break, because she's given this position by the female deputy of the CIA... She's rough around the edges, she makes a lot of silly mistakes and she's a comedic leading character, so of course she's going to have pratfalls and embarrass herself and screw up because that's what happens to comedic leading characters. But she comes good, she comes to her own, she holds her own. Um, She has a female antagonist, she has a female sidekick, she has a female boss and we have all these ridiculous men on the sidelines playing the kind of Bond girl type roles. I mean, yeah, Jude Law is one version of kind of the the suave but slightly dumb and clueless... um, Bond character. I thought Jason Statham was hilarious as the alpha male. I'm going to come in and save the day and continually screw things up for her. And I quite like the way he eventually took on the role of the Bond girl at the very end. I won't spoil anything. And yeah, and Peter um, Seranifovich, I I um I just think was a hilarious exaggeration of that kind of sleazy male persona. So I, I enjoyed that the gender gender flipping and i enjoyed the fact that we were encouraged to laugh with her like i felt 100 percent on her side this entire film and really enjoyed how she stood up to everybody physically verbally and and came good despite everything being against her i mean the whole system is designed to ridicule her she gets these horrible personas she gets these horrible gimmicks and she rises above that all the time to become the hero
1: it's interesting that you mentioned that, that, that issue of subjectivity because I think with comedy especially, it really comes to the surface. You either find it f- a comedy funny or not. And uh, the idea of ludicrous comedy doesn't bother me in the slightest. I like really dumb, ludicrous humour. This, to me, almost felt like a John Waters film written by a computer and that it was, it was textually obsessed with the abject, but it couldn't quite deal with it. It, it, it just felt like the wrong... Uh, there was just this clash that didn't work for me. On a subjective level, I just didn't find it that funny. I did, I confess, I laughed twice, but it it was like the comedy equivalent of being burped. It just sort of fell from my body. <laughs> uh, and I resented it. I was, I was embarrassed that, that I laughed. Is that
3: the abject like, erotic you speak of
1: so often now? <laughs> is that that,
0: that's another poster tagline for the, the comic equivalent of being burped. <laughs> I don't get the John Waters comparison though I don't I think, the, the injection
1: is... I think especially in the first third of the film there's a lot of talk about uh, the fecal which yeah. is the second time I've used that word today I'm proud of that uh, there's a there's a, a vomiting gag um, which I actually ca- gave me cause to uh, a moment to pause, because um, it's a, a, a shot of Melissa McCarthy puking. And it's like, remember. would you would you put what other puking kind of body onto type? I've actually time. got a list. Do
2: you want me to go through this very quickly? Do. oh yeah, that's right. Well, I yeah. found it funny. Of the abject. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe I should contextualise the treatment of the abject in the film. Because I, I think it's worth pointing out, because often Thomas and I disagree on comedies, although in terms of Bright Paul Figg's previous films, Bridesmaids and the Heat, we're very much on site. I thought they were really strong films, particularly the heat and in the way in which dealt with gender. And I really reacted negatively to this film, and I think in part it was the expectation of those previous films, and also because the the publicity, both inside and outside of this film, is that Paul Figg is the next great male feminist director. He's even sort of self-proclaiming that. He's using that in his interviews. I direct and write all my films by the Bechtel test, this and this and this. And I found this, not just a not-a-feminist film, but I found it really anti-female, in a, in a in a way that's almost insidious because, as you mentioned, Thomas, it's not on the surface because we have, we have a number of women in strong positions in the film. In fact, the basement where the McCarthy figure works is just women and black men, which I thought was really interesting in terms of racial politics and, and gender politics. And vermin, though. Well, yeah, and vermin. I think, I think this film... I don't think Paul Figures set out to make an insensitive film. I don't think he's a misogynist director. I don't want to kind of tar him with that sort of extreme brush, but I don't think... The sophistication where he's trying to play with gender in this film works, and the key thing for me is the way in which it treats Melissa McCarthy's body. She is subject to a series of physical humiliations scene after scene that involve, and here we go, I'll very briefly go through some of them. Uh, She gets pink eye, there's jokes about her hemorrhoids, stool softener, there's a joke about her shitting her pants, there's farting, her hair, her dress sense, fungal cream, vomiting, passing out, can't run, can't use a bike. And what frustrated me the most in terms of the way in which her brand of physical comedy is employed in this film, is she never gets to own it. There's no sense of empowerment out of the bodiliness of this, and I think you could contrast her type of humour in this film with this idea of the unruly woman, how we've seen it with other female stand-up comics, or just comics like Roseanne Barr, um, French and Saunders, where the way in which they employ that kind of abject humour is a source of empowerment. It breaks stereotypes of female, how, female identity, how it should, should be, like a correct or appropriate female identity. And I think I was almost tro- almost hoping uh, that at a certain point, because we're told she has these hidden talents, that she would get to own it. But I found that each time she gets to show her kind of kick arsery, uh, the film undercuts that, it undermines it. So she, there's a great action scene where she beats the crap out of a guy and kicks, kicks him off a building but then it's almost like she can't actually handle what she's done and she has to erupt into a vomiting and, and self-doubt and self-pity and it felt like every moment we get to see briefly the kind of hero within, the underdog story the film takes, takes that talent away from her in a way that even though the men in this film are laughable parodies of masculinity we still, they still get to hold on to
0: their skills, they still get to have perfected physical masculinity but that gag, though, where she kicks the guy off the building and throws up, the gag there is that's the first time she's killed somebody in the field and the joke is she's inexperienced. I just think all these things she does, we wouldn't think twice if this was Mr Bean or, or, or Basil Fawlty or any number of all Leslie Nielsen in the naked I, gun I films.
1: I haven't seen Mr Bean puke. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. I mean, it sounds like I'm joking, but I, well, I was struggling. Like puking a right?
0: <laughs> I mean, I know, a lot of this stuff was in bridesmaids. I mean, remember the scene where they all get food poisoning? I mean, that went over the top. And but I think, I think the...
1: objections fine. I like. I mean, I'm a big John Waters fan, but for me, there was, it was. I think you're like it was particularly coded in in a strange way for me. And it seemed show. to
2: undercut it. Like know. The, the repeated joke that she can't actually she can't actually get her moment of empowerment. I even read the final scene between her and Statham in, in a way that she's finally she gets a. a ch- gets to choose between the love interest who's a complete prick and she's realized that she shouldn't be going after this guy and siding with a female coworker and even that moment of of the female unity gets taken away the very next moment and that's the that's the punchline at the end of the film i felt this film is really just humiliating her in a way that it doesn't quite do that for the men, and didn't in the heat or bridesmaids like that scene of of the random shitting in the streets in bridesmaids. I thought worked at, on the level of parody because it's like look at them mocking the institution of wedding. And these characters are in their bridal dresses <laughs> and they're yeah. soiling soiling those those clothes and that whole scenario. Like I thought that was so satirical and it worked in in a way that I don't think this one worked. I'm think- glad
1: that you mentioned. Sorry,
2: that's right. Go ahead.
1: I'm glad that you mentioned the Bechdel test because I, I um, it's a, it's a little bit of a bugbear of mine. I've published an article about it in that I think it can be dangerously oversimplistic to rely too explicitly on on the Bechdel test. And this film, for me, it it passes the Bechdel test in that in that it you know it ticks all of the boxes, but. It's humour comes in large part from just women being awful to other women and yep. just constantly but it's berating it's... each other for dressing like shit. But
0: it's a and comedy, they it...
1: get to be... But it... they're so mean. I mean, if, 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 the, the... if the great feminist utopia that Bechdel is supposed to promise... Is just women but
0: hammering what, what, women non-stop. Well, what's a perfect feminist comedy going to look at? Look like if, if the characters can't be mean to each not, other not and not trip even, each other up and make no, 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 each other. I'm
1: not, not, not even mean... talking about perfection. I'm it's just a talking talking about... comedy
0: with with these women in these great lead roles. I, I I think it's it's unfortunate if we if we if we say that that somehow d- dilutes the empowerment message because these leading characters who occupy all the screen time often do humiliating and embarrassing things because that's what lead comedic characters do.
1: I just found it a really mean spirited. Mm-hmm. film. I didn't find it funny and I thought it was I thought the racial representations I mean we're talking a lot about Peter's
3: Serafana. <laughs> <laughs> he's
1: like he's like an Italian Pepe Le Pew. I mean that was like carry-on level of awkwardness. It was I mean, I, I, I mean, I, and look, it's comedy. It's subjective, and I think we're always going to come back to that. I do need to, to be fair, I have to say that I really, I do like Melissa McCarthy a lot, and I will watch anything with her in it. I think she's just got, she's just amazing. She's really funny. But I, I have massive problems with Miranda Hart. It's like somebody stuck a black wig on a breadstick and gave it the fam, fame deserving of uh, uh, Tamsin Greig. Right. I don't know. I, I, know. I, I, I saw her and I switched off. So <laughs> subjectivity. has been
0: very nasty, yeah. anti-her. So but I there mean...
3: is something to be said that this. This film uh, does pit Melissa McCarthy against all conventionally attractive women, the uh, the conventionally attractive types, even cr- actually crossing racial lines, which is slightly cr- to its credit, I suppose, with uh, the casting of Nargis Fakhri as this um, oh, I almost saw there. <laughs> as uh, this uh, kick-ass. I don't even know where she's from. I can't remember, um, but. Uh, yeah, she, there is that antagonism between uh, the the woman constantly ridiculed, uh, even just for her dress sense, constantly by Rose Byrne's, um shrill, nasty piece of work in the uh, privileged um, Rose and you know Yeah, it's, it, it, I, I, a lot of this did make me feel a little uncomfortable, even as I did laugh out loud a few times more towards the end. The first, I thought, it was just awful. I think, sorry, I was just,
2: just <laughs> no. going to say, I think it does tread a fine line, and it even seems conscious of the fact that... That it is undercutting her at her moments of empowerment. There's a line in which she says to the Serafinowicz character, "I was just having a self-empowering moment, and then you went and put your penis on the back of my head." So it's like Paul Fig is understanding that that's what he's doing, but without a d- enough of a sophistication. That old story. Know. <laughs> Every Friday night. Oh, here we go again. So yeah, maybe maybe it's just about execution for me as opposed to intention. We've been talking about
0: spy. <laughs> I liked it. I'm alone. You're listening to Plato's K here on three triple R. Three triple R oh. hatchet for the honeymoon currently available now on DVD and Blu-ray from 1970, I believe, Alex.
1: It is. This is by Mario Bava, who's one of the biggest names in Italian genre film, um, although he's known primarily for his horror film. Now, Dario Argento, of course, might be more famous internationally, but Bava is without doubt the father of the giallo film and in turn would go on um, to become the father of the slasher film. Um, The slasher film is so closely related to giallo uh, that some critics have even identified it as North American giallo. And there are very specific films that you can really see this um, this heritage of the giallo film in, in North American slasher. Now, Bava may not be as prolific as uh, Spanish... Filmmaker Jess Franco, but he was up there. He made a lot of movies, and as I said, not just horror. Um, and he's really responsible for one of the most well known and, and well loved, and certainly the most beautiful Italian horror films ever made. Films like Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, The Whip and the Body. I'm going to flag a film here called Kill Baby Kill for you, Thomas, because it's um, a very clear clear inspiration for David Lynch on Twin Peaks, particularly very famous scene in the last episode is a direct homage to Mario Bava's Kill, Baby Kill.
0: I'm not across this film, I'm thank you kindly. I'm going to lend it to
1: you and you will have a little surprise. <laughs> and all of our all of our spy disagreements will be forgotten.
0: We'll all be forgiven. We'll sit down I'll,
1: and watch Demolition Man and everything. Will
0: be I'll, 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 I'll stop sulking then.
1: <laughs> um hatchet for the honeymoon i guess in a sense compared to these really big titles is it's almost mid to low canon bava um I really like it, though. The plot is is super interesting. It follows a, a handsome and murderously demented guy called John Harrington, who runs a bridal fashion design house with his rich but cold and alienated wife, Mildred. John spends much of his day making out with plastic mannequins on the sly and chopping up nice young women, as you do, um, until he has a gut full of Mildred, basically, and decides to get rid of her as well. And it's only from this point that I think we can officially say that things get weird. And when you're watching the film, I don't think you realise how unusual what he does is. But he basically does a, a kind of, Baba does a kind of reverse ghost story in that uh, John can't see Mildred, but everybody else can. Nobody realizes that she's dead. It's, it's a remarkably simple trick, but a really effective one. Now, giallo and Italian horror more generally can sometimes come as a bit of a shock if you're new to it on the gender representation front. There's a lot of pretty young girls in, in quite glamorous murder vignettes being chopped up into little bits. Um, I'm a huge fan of Italian horror, and, and even I have to say that there's not a blanket progressive reading of, of giallo especially. But I love these films. They're so beautiful for starters. There's, there's a real joy of the filmmaking process in them. They're so over-the-top and elegant and and just flamboyant. And even an ordinary barber film like this one, I think is just miles above a lot of the stuff that was coming out of um, the genre both then and now. There's always something subversive bubbling away in Giallo, and Hatchet for the Honeymoon is no different. It is, at its core, a study of impotence and and misogyny, and the film is never sympathetic to to John at all. In fact, it's quite actively ridicules him and mocks him. Um... We we also have a very early final girl in this film, and you do get that in a lot of giallo films, which I think is worth flagging. There are references here to uh, Bluebeard. I think most notably the film is riffing on Barber's earlier film, quite often called the first giallo film or one of the earliest giallo films, a film called uh, Blood and Black Lace from 1964. Uh, Hatcher for the Honeymoon would go on to be a huge, huge influence on on a couple of films in particular, Umberto Lenzi's bewilderingly named Spasmo, a giallo from 1974, and perhaps more famously... Uh, Bill Lustig's Maniac from 1980 with Joe Spinell, which was remade a couple of years back with Elijah Wood. I I was going to say that I don't know whether this is the best entry point if you're new to Barber and probably recommend something like Blood or Black Lace or Black Sunday or Black Sabbath. Um, But, Josh, you're relatively new... To the Land of Bava.
2: I'm a giallo newbie. A noob. I'm a relative (laughs) newcomer to the world of giallo. I've only just been getting into it. Um, But I love this. I thought this was great. This is like paging Dr. Freud kind of 101. I mean, I love it. It's about mothers, wives, models and mistresses. And, you know, the the play on reflective surfaces in this film, The the, I mean, you mentioned style. This is a gorgeous looking film. The colours, the editing, the way in which he distorts certain visions and uses mirrors to create distortions, reflections even off the hatchet, which keeps reappearing in various guises. Um, it's kind of hard not to get beyond Freud with this. And, and I think... In terms of references, it's very much uh, an evolution of Hitchcock's Psycho in the way in which the central character is obsessed with his mother, the sexual violence, the primal scene. Um, There's a cross-dressing moment as well. He even sort of almost internalises his mother's voice. But also, I'm positive this must have influenced Mary Harron and the way in which she adapted the American Psycho. The film begins with the voiceover of the psychopathic character confessing that he is a psychopath. He has issues, he has problems, and this is how he deals with them. In such a almost a commonplace, casual tone, which is exactly how Haran opens *American Psycho* with Patrick Bateman looking into the mirror, talking about himself as a as a psychopath, and of course the film follows a similar trajectory in, in the sense that he finally falls in love but can't quite get this woman because of the ghost the spectral presence of his wife and the same thing happens to Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. I think this is a really important film and I say that as
3: someone who is not all that familiar with Giallo. It is so Freudian and the opening sequence uh, you mentioned Psycho before too there's a lot that's Tremendously Hitchcockian about this, as with so many Gialli, uh, the plural of Giallo, if you were to be, to be you know, a stickler. Um, a murder scene as a train enters a tunnel. I mean, how, how, how much do you need things spelt out for you here? Um, yeah, this is... A classic giallo in that it, it pop psychology comes to the fore. Yes, and that, that early voiceover where he announces he is a paranoiac. Um, uh, so many of these giallis uh, allow these um, giallis, I've even ruined my own plural already. <laughs> so, so many of these give the, the protagonists or these anti-heroes or actually they're just straight out villains but the protagonists nonetheless. Um, really ludicrous uh, backstories so that the flimsiest uh, pretext for going on murderous sprees. I mean there'll always be a we'll see and we'll figure out what it is eventually and actually it really is an interesting one and this is a nice twist in it but um yeah, it, it, there's not a lot of depth ever to the characterisations. I mean, if, if you are new to this genre, you needn't expect um, by uh, any really rich, deep characterisation. That's a real rarity. Uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean these films are any less fun. They have so much fun with uh, that pop psychology, and it infects the very form of the film. So when we're advised that the main character is a paranoiac, we can immediately and rightly expect the form of the film to be a little playful as well. So we, we're immediately treated to a very elliptical series of shots of things. Some are probably in the past, some might be in the future, who knows, with spooky voices and John, John on the soundtrack. And, you know, it's... uh, There's not a lot of depth necessarily but there's always a new angle and a new way to murder beautiful women as we learn in these films time and again. It's a different camera angle. It's a slightly different uh, take on madness but the the, the flair for invention that Barva has, I mean, he he was brilliant and uh, of course he was the director of photography on this himself too. He had a, a glorious career not just as a director but as a cinematographer long before he even started directing and it's such an exquisitely beautiful film.
1: I'll take a mid canon Bava over a high canon, a lot of other people, in a second. Above a, bava fa- not even a failure, but above a bava misfire is still a remarkable film.
2: And even on a technical level, I mean, you mentioned the, the paranoic conflation of reality and fantasy in the past and the present. These films are extraordinarily well edited. I mean, this film particularly, it's just these, those wonderful sequences it's almost like a precursor to music videos you know, the the way in which the, we get these, these vivid expressive lights and then the doors fling open and curtains and characters come rushing in but they seem to be rushing into what was a memory of of the past, you know, the, the sort of the, the build up in, in the final stages of this narrative is, is, is really extraordinary It's
1: interesting that you mentioned music videos uh, I was thinking earlier of the Beastie Boys, I can't remember the song, there's a Beastie Boys video that is a direct homage to Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic and the the video, I think, has the, the DVD of Danger Diabolique. There is one available that has a Beastie Boys commentary on it, talking about how Im- how moved and how influenced they were by. by I can't Mary have Obama's seen that films. clip.
3: I'm now dying to. I've got blank
1: on what the song is. Such a I stunningly designed
3: oh, film.
0: That one as we well. Will, we,
1: will, we shall put it on our Twitter.
0: Is it Body Movin'? It could be. Oh, really.
1: I don't know. I can't remember. I
0: kind of, you know, No, that can't be right. I was going to say, body Doesn't... moving, body and keep your body moving. No, I think one? it is, yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm just looking at Wikipedia so God knows <laughs> if that's true or not. But, um, yep, it, it's saying that was inspired by this film. So there you go. Oh, wonderful.
2: There's also the, one of the, ki- the killer lines at the end of this film. It could have been so nice, although I suppose it couldn't be.
0: <laughs> that was the, like, <laughs> yep, hands down, put that on a T-shirt. I love that. We have to get out of here now. Uh, we've been talking about Wild Tales. That's unlimited release through sony pictures spies on wide release through 20th century fox and hatchet for the honeymoon is available on dvd blu-ray and google play courtesy of shock entertainment you've been with thomas caldwell josh nelson alexander helen nicholas and cerise howard good night